from ARUP Laboratories on the campus of the University of Utah. Welcome to the LabMind podcast, where we discuss the future of diagnostic laboratory testing. I'm Dr. Brian Jackson. Good morning. Today is Tuesday, April 14th, 2020. Uh, today's LabMind podcast is part of a special series that we're doing on laboratory diagnostics for the COVID-19 pandemic. So for any of you who are listening to this podcast at some point in the future, I want to put a little bit of a historic placeholder to put it in the right context. As of April 14th today, we are approximately one month into widespread lockdowns in the United States with everyone other than healthcare workers and essential professions being strongly encouraged to stay home. This approach seems to be working so far with the new case counts leveling off, but we're far from being out of the woods. So far, we've seen over 20,000 deaths from the virus, which is obviously sobering. That's just in the United States alone. And while governments at the national, state, and local levels are working on plans to open up the economy, get us all back to work again and back to school and shopping and all of that, all of those plans really hinge on the availability and the application of diagnostic testing. So that's where, where we in the laboratory obviously come in. This includes the ability to rapidly test symptomatic and exposed individuals, but it also includes the ability to test people retrospectively to establish whether they had a prior infection, whether or not they were symptomatic or not. So that's the area of testing we're going to be talking about on the podcast today. So my guests today are two experts in immunology and medical microbiology here at AREP Laboratories. Dr. Patricia Slev and Dr. Jenna Reichert. Uh, Dr. Slev is Section Chief for Immunology here at AREP and Associate Professor of Pathology at the University of Utah. Dr. Reichert is Medical Director for Microbial Immunology and an Adjunct Assistant Professor of Pathology also here at the University of Utah. Dr. Slev and Dr. Reichert, welcome to the LabMind Podcast. Thank you. So to start off, what are the key differences between the COVID-19 nucleic acid detection test and the serology test that you two have been working on? The primary difference between nucleic acid tests and antibody tests can be summed up as follows. Nucleic acid testing or molecular tests directly detect viral genetic material from a swab. Antibody testing detects antibodies, which are proteins that are formed in response to the COVID-19 infection. So what we know about the kinetics of antibody development and in relation to NAT testing and molecular tests is that um, the incubation period for COVID-19 infection is up to 14 days. At that point, there is potentially onset of symptoms. When the onset of symptoms becomes apparent, that's accompanied by a peak viremia which then results in this development of the immune response and antibodies are generated to fight the infection. Most individuals will seroconvert somewhere between day 10 to 14 post-symptom onset. And so those are the antibodies that we are trying to detect with an antibody test and antibodies are detected from a blood sample. So for those who are laboratorians, serum or plasma. We've got some experience now, at least you know, a number of weeks of experience here in the U.S. with the nucleic acid detection tests, trying to get some experience with how sensitive and specific and reliable those tests are. Given that, what, what's the role of the antibody testing, and does it overlap at all with the nucleic acid detection? I want to make clear that the currently molecular tests are recommended for diagnosis of COVID-19 infection. Antibody tests, specifically IgG, which is the antibody test that uh, I think will be the first to be offered by most institutions, is a marker that indicates exposure to COVID-19 infection but does not inform infection status. 
So that's a very important distinction. For diagnosis, molecular tests are the recommended tests. Antibody tests currently primarily for detecting or exposure to COVID-19 infection. So even though it's the same virus and the same disease, it sounds like these two tests are really non-overlapping roles. That's correct at this point. And then, Brian, to add to that, eventually... We hope that antibody tests will help kind of inform some treatment and vaccine use. So, for example, the FDA recently approved the use of convalescent plasma on a compassionate use basis. And in order to provide convalescent plasma to patients as treatment, we need to be able to uh, test the donors. So that's another way that antibody testing can be helpful. And then, of course, for a vaccine to help kind of establish the vaccine efficacy Antibody testing may also be helpful, but as I said, those are, you know, in the future. So one very important application of IgG, which again is a marker indicating exposure, is to really get an accurate or a a more informed idea of uh, what is the true rate of infection for COVID-19, because many individuals are asymptomatic, and I think that's been a subject that's been covered in the media uh, lately quite a bit. So we don't know how many asymptomatic individuals there may be out there, and so we cannot determine the true rate of infection. In addition, there are probably a fair amount of individuals who did develop some symptoms but never sought any medical care. Uh, This would be another way to determine if those individuals truly had COVID-19 infection and and then inform um, us about the true rate of infection Uh, at a local, regional, or national level, um, as well as determine um, case fatality rate. So surveillance and epidemiologic studies are one very important aspect from the public health perspective that would be greatly helped by performing this test. So it's interesting with your description, even though this isn't a primary diagnostic test, it's actually going to be really important in a number of different aspects of, of managing the overall you know, disease and pandemic, or at least you know, potentially useful for, um, for a whole list of different applications that you just, just pointed out. So I'd like to ask a couple of questions about the technical aspects of this. And it's sort of getting to the fact that there are a lot of different antibody tests that appear to be coming onto the market. There are a lot of handheld ones. There are some in different laboratories. So I'm curious, are all of these based on antibodies to the same antigen? Are there, are there multiple antigens that people are using? And how comparable might the antibodies be? So is there anything you can say about that? It's a little bit unclear just because of the way that serology testing is kind of being rolled out nationally. But from what I'm hearing from colleagues and manufacturers who are publishing information, the antigens could differ. So one test might use antigens from the spike protein or maybe multiple antigens, whereas other tests could be um, targeting N proteins. It really kind of depends on the manufacturer's choice there, and it does appear to be different. Just like you have in the molecular tests, those are all directed at different genes. And I I also want to add that we talk about antibody testing right now as a broad category, and specifically, as I mentioned earlier, I think the primary isotype of antibody that will be offered as far as uh, testing will be IgG. But we do expect at some point that IgM may also be available. So that's another point to keep in mind when we talk about antibody testing. Let me ask you a follow-up question on that one. Based on your experience with different serologic tests, because you've, you've obviously been involved in you know, studying and validating tests for a lot of different uh, types of infections, 
and antibody responses to different microorganisms. Is there anything you could say about you know the utility of just looking for IgG versus a combined IgG IgM versus an IgM versus are we going to start looking at IgA for this one? That's that's probably a little further off, but anything you can say about that? Those questions are very important questions, and I think we need more. Um more assays for IgM in particular and more studies, independent studies, to know how the IgM could be uh, used clinically and in other applications in the near future. So right now, I think specifically for COVID-19, there need to be uh, one availability of these assays. And I will stress that there are some IgM, IgM, IgG point of care tests, but not uh, lab-developed or lab-based type of assays. Um, Those, I think, are coming, but they aren't on the forefront of antibody testing at the moment. So it sounds like there's a lot of science that is yet to be done and that's going to be really important in the near term, both comparing different platforms, but also getting the clinical data uh, to correlate with that. So um, I'm trying to push you to speculate prematurely, but I respect that we need to wait for for the science to come out. That probably leads us into our next question, which is you know, what What did the clinicians need to know about this test? So first question would be just when you think of accuracy, you know, accuracy, we could split into false positives and false negatives. Uh, let's just arbitrarily start out with false negatives. So if someone gets, a, you know, an antibody test uh, for this disease and it comes out negative, what are the scenarios under which that could be a false negative? And do you have any sort of guidance about, you know, how likely that's going to be? So I think it's important to keep in mind viral kinetics when we talk about false negatives, particularly for IgG. So if the sample is collected too early post-symptom onset, uh, maybe post-PCR testing, but there has not been sufficient time to seroconvert to an IgG pause and therefore will not be detected, those will be false negative and they don't necessarily mean that the patient is not currently infected, which is one reason why IgG is not uh, recommended to determine infection status. And then, of course, no tests are perfect, and they can't detect down to zero. So you're going to have different sensitivity levels with different tests. Right. So in, in your experience with antibody tests to other diseases, other viruses, for example, what could you say about sort of the range of you know, sensitivity and specificity across other kinds of diseases? So there's a wide range depending on specific pathogen and disease. I do think their manufacturers are working on having very high sensitivity and specificity for COVID-19 testing. And we have seen some data that suggests that the sensitivity and specificity will be quite high for COVID-19 antibody tests, uh, maybe higher than we've seen for other respiratory uh, serologic assays. So on the the flip side of false negatives, the false positive question. So the scenario here would be a patient gets their blood drawn, they get an antibody test, it comes back positive, and they want to know how confident can they be that they were truly exposed and therefore likely to be immune. How do you think about that question based on what you know about the science of testing antibodies? So again, as my colleague Dr. Reichert just mentioned, there is no perfect test. So there will be false positive and false negative. One potential reason for a false positive result is cross-reactivity with other coronaviruses that are related but are not the cause of COVID-19 infection. Um, and I think we are also looking at those data carefully to see what is the prevalence of that cross-reaction. So not only with other respiratory viruses, but in particular with other coronaviruses. 
So it sounds like, again, the, back to your theme, there, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of research yet to be done on these tests. I think this has been such a rapidly evolving situation that because of the duration of time has been so short, uh, we're all working very hard not only to meet the need for testing, but then also to address some of these uh, very important questions with data. And it takes time to get the data in addition to doing all the preparation to offer this type of testing and, and meet uh, testing demand. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough challenge. The, the public and the clinical community you know, just want, want the tests as fast as they can get them, but the science takes time. Um, so I appreciate everything you're doing to help further that. Given what we've talked about so far, if there were a clinician listening, what would you want them to know about the most medically responsible way to use this test? When should they order this test on their patients? As Patricia said, kind of at the top here, this is not for diagnosis, so that should not be forefront in their mind. The other thing to keep in mind is because we are all trying to get back to normal, there's lots of interest in looking at those point-of-care or near-point-of-care tests, and we just have to keep in mind that there's some variability in what's available out there, and all tests, regardless of where they're performed, whether it's in the laboratory or nearer to the patient, they have to be validated, and quality control has to be put around them. I also want to emphasize this, that point. I think there are many clinicians in the community that may be very attracted to rapid tests for ease of use and may also be under the impression that these can just be rolled out and just used for diagnostic testing. But I think they need to be aware about some of the regulatory um, issues associated with this process, and in particular, whether it's a lab-based test or a rapid point-of-care test, they need to be thoroughly validated, which means conducting the rigorous studies to verify manufacturers' claims with regard to sensitivity and specificity and ensuring accuracy and uh, reliability of the test. To add one more thing on to that, the serology tests have been a bit unique from the FDA perspective. In normal times, the FDA would approve or clear a test from a manufacturer to then be distributed commercially. In the cases of a public health emergency, the FDA can kind of expedite that sort of review by using authorization, so emergency use authorization, and that has occurred, that did occur for molecular testing. The added kind of interesting component for serology testing is the FDA has said that as a manufacturer, as long as you validate your in vitro diagnostic device, you can notify the FDA and then you can just go ahead and start offering it commercially. And so the FDA is not going to necessarily in those circumstances see the data from the manufacturer. So we're trusting that the manufacturers are going to be transparent and that their claims are going to be accurate. So as Patricia was saying, that's the reason why it's super important to make sure that as the user, you know that the test has been validated. So my understanding, you know, as of today, at least, because the, you know, the FDA guidance seems to be evolving pretty rapidly just because the pandemic's evolving so rapidly. But, but at least as of today, my understanding is that the rapid devices that have not gone through the full FDA evaluation would have to be uh, evaluated by a high-complexity CLIA laboratory and be operated within the context of a high-complexity CLIA laboratory. Am I correct on that one? That is my understanding. It's a bit of a confusing issue. I think that basically the way the FDA has put it when I have listened in on their phone calls is that because they're not reviewing the data, they cannot put a complexity level to the test. 
so unless they are actually, unless the manufacturer is actually getting um, authorization via an EUA, the FDA has no way to actually tell which complexity of laboratory it would be appropriate for. And so by default, they all do become high complexity. Okay, so they're not clear ways which many point of care tests are for other pathogens or diseases like HIV. So that seems to be the operative point for for clinicians at this point, that these are not, even though the devices look like home pregnancy kits or whatever, that they're not actually approved to go be used by clinicians at the point of care, let alone by patients themselves. Right. And of course, you know, once a test does go through that EUA process and the FDA has reviewed the data, part of that review is deciding what complexities. As you've pointed out repeatedly, we're eagerly awaiting comparison data. And I know there are groups, I heard on a conference call yesterday that there's an intergovernmental group involving FDA scientists and CDC scientists and and some other agencies doing comparison testing on on many of these different assays. So by the time that the listeners listen to this podcast, there'll probably be a lot more data out than there is today. But in the meantime, just as a general statement, let me bounce this off of you. One aspect of test reliability for most tests, uh, certainly including the, the nucleic acid test, but I would assume also for antibody tests, is uh, spec- the specimen collection and the quality of the specimen being collected. And, you know, as someone who works in a laboratory, if I were getting antibody tested, I know I would personally feel a lot more comfortable getting a venipuncture and a, a well-controlled uh, sample versus a, you know, a finger stick, just knowing what we know about the variability of the fluids in that finger stick, whole blood, and if that could play into it. I mean, is that is that a reasonable way to think about it, even if I'm not actually proving that one sample is better than the other? Well, I think there have been very successful stories for point-of-care finger prick testing, for example, for HIV. So I think there are many other issues besides the sample types that are associated with having an inaccurate result, and I think that goes back to making sure we validate these point-of-care tests appropriately. But point-of-care tests have been used successfully, not just in clinics and under CLIA-waived regulations. So for HIV, for example, if it's a finger prick, and um, the sample does not require any processing, so it's not plasma or syrup, or serum, it can be CLIA-waived. And that has worked for some outreach programs. I think it has been successfully used. I think what we don't know right now is what does that really look like for COVID-19, especially since there are so many point-of-care tests currently. And they may not all be equal, right? Yeah. Okay, that totally makes sense. Final question for both of you. Anything that we've missed here? So anything that you would want, uh, particularly a clinician, to know about antibody testing for COVID-19 that we haven't already covered? So the one thing I think is very important, again, uh, with focus on antibody testing right now is primarily on IgG. And I just want to reiterate that IgG is a marker for exposure. And not only does it not inform about infection status, but we also don't know that that indicates protective immunity. And, and that's a really very important question that everybody is trying to address, and we hope to have more data and have an answer to that in the next few weeks, because that is a very important question about if you have mounted an immune response to COVID-19 and you can detect IgG, does that mean you can't get it again? And we do not know that. And we do not know, even if the immunity is protective, how long it will last. So. 
those are very important points. If you just get tested one for IgG right now, we don't know what that means in terms of reinfection and long-lasting immunity. Sounds good. Dr. Reichert, anything else to add at your end? Yeah, um, you know, having tests available in the U.S. has kind of been an issue all along. And I think lots of people were hoping that the antibody testing would fill in that gap a little bit. And just to remind everyone, this is not for diagnosis. So it's not going to fill the gap that we hope it will, at least not in the short term. All right. Well, we've been listening to Dr. Patricia Slev and Dr. Jenna Reichert. Thank you both so much for being on the podcast today and sharing your knowledge with our audience. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Lab Mind podcast, sponsored by ARUP Laboratories. ARUP is a not for profit enterprise of the University of Utah and its Department of Pathology. You can find more Lab Mind podcasts at www.arup.utah.edu or subscribe to Lab Mind using iTunes or your favorite podcast app.